Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 311. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 311 you're listening to. My guest today is Boston-based mastering and restoration engineer Maria Rice. Maria works at Peerless Mastering and has received three nominations for the Grammy Award for Best Historical Album. And her remastering work also includes the 2018 reissue of Blondie's Heart of Glass. Marie and I connected over LinkedIn, and I reached out to her, and she graciously accepted my invitation to come on the show. So very much looking forward to bringing you Maria Rice here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about knowing yourself. Recently, I turned 51. Yep, great old age of 51. And uh, one of the presents that I received from my family was um, a book about Sagittarius. Yes, we're going to talk about astrological signs briefly. I know it's a little hippy-dippy, but bear with me. So, yes, I'm a Sagittarius. was born in November. What I take from the whole astrological thing, you know, I don't really get that deep into it, but I do in my mind catalog the, the people that I know and know what their sign is. And the funny thing is, is that either I read into it and think that there's similarities in those people that share those signs. For example, you know, those that I know who are cancers. Uh, One of my sons is a cancer. My brother's a cancer. Friends of mine are cancers. And they have a similarity to them. Same thing with Sagittarius, which I am. I know other people that are Sagittarius and there are similarities that I feel I share with those people. So whether that's bullshit or not, I don't really know. It's a data point that I use to kind of evaluate situations and people and know some basics about their personality. In reading this book, I'm reading it and it's, you know, it tells you, you know, this is how you are with money and this is how you are with career and all the aspects of your life. And some of it was just completely wrong. Absolutely wrong. Some of it was absolutely so spot on. It was frightening. It got me thinking about how I am with clients and knowing myself, knowing my strengths, knowing my weaknesses, knowing how I feel about working in a particular way. Case in point, I'm sure I mentioned this at some point in some monologue, but I had some clients that, some potential clients, uh, there's the key term there, uh, reach out to me and say, hey, we're interested in having you mix this record. And I said, great, send me the files. Uh, Let's have a conversation ahead of time. So I kind of get a sense of, you know, where your head's at. And they said, oh, no, we actually, we really want to be right there with you. And we want to do some experiments and just be in it with you day to day on the mixing. Well, I can tell you, friends, that that is just not how I work. By revealing that to the client or the potential client in this case, I kind of turned them off from wanting to work with me. And quite honestly, I felt that that was okay because I find it better to state up front how I work my best how I feel I can give them the best part of me because of my own little quirks, right? I just don't like people sitting over my shoulder as I mix unless it's like, you know, 
an intern or somebody who's just genuinely curious on on how I work. But to sit there and do some experiments with this client, I was like, not up for that. I thought, you know, you're hiring me to mix. I want to be hired to mix and that's it. And I have a particular way I do that, right? So that's one case where I can think of knowing what I like and what I don't like and how I work my best. I think that's a benefit to everybody when I'm truthful about that whole thing. Now, I could have said, um, okay, sure, let's do it. And I know myself well enough that I would have been miserable. And one thing is for certain to me, I don't want to be miserable when I'm working on the thing that I really love to do. It was good that they stated that's what they needed from the, the mix engineer. And it was good that I stated what I needed from the, from the client, from the artist. And therefore they chose a different path. Now, I don't know where that record ended up. I don't know what happened to it. And uh, I hope they did well. And it's no slight on them and how they want to work. Some people, you know, they have requirements of what's important to them. And rightfully so, they should state that up front. So, as I said, they stated their position. I stated my position. We didn't end up working together. Other people I tell that to, they're like, great, because I don't even want to spend my day hanging out, watching you adjust the kick drum sound. I'm, I'm with them. <laughs> I don't want them there either. So the point of the story is, is that it's, you know, and I'm not suggesting you all rush out and go buy this, you know, astrological book, but in reading it, it just really jogged my memory about certain things and really reminded me that I have certain quirks and I like to work a certain way. I have a certain personality and I know where my shortcomings are and I know uh, that I have to work extra hard when it comes to those shortcomings. That's why I'm such a slave to the calendar. I love the calendar because I can just put it down and once it's in the calendar, it's carved in stone as far as I'm concerned, unless, you know, the client says otherwise or, you know, the situation says otherwise. But to ensure that I show up on time and do what I need to do when I need to do it, that's why the calendar is important. But I know that about myself that if I just kind of say, oh, sure, yeah, uh, I'll meet you on the 26th at 4 p.m. That's going to go out my brain so quickly. I need to make sure and put it in the calendar. And maybe you have a, uh, a mind like a steel trap and therefore you can uh, remember stuff like that. Like, you know, you, have you ever been to a restaurant where the waiter or waitress comes up and says, you know, takes the order of like four to six people without writing anything down? I could never do that. I would, I would have to work extra hard to do that. So the key here is Know yourself, know what you like, know what you don't like. And in the case that I mentioned about the mixing thing, you know, if you need the mixing gig, take it and, you know, change change how you work uh, if you feel you need to take the gig, right? Because we all need to pay the bills. And if you got to take the gig, you take the gig. But if you've handled your money pretty well and you got a little uh, runway to work with, then, you know, you can be a little more choosy in certain situations and you could say, well, you know, actually I work this way and I know that doesn't work for you. Therefore, I'm going to recommend somebody else. So think about it. Think about what makes you tick. What are your quirks? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Address those, work on them. And when it comes to clients, my MO is I like to be truthful upfront with everybody that I work with. I like to be truthful about the money, about how I work, what's involved. I don't have a manager. I, you know, a lot of my guests can have a manager and let them be the financial, you know, uh, person, but that's not me. So if you are anything like me uh, in that regard and you're working on your own, consider these uh, suggestions. And, uh, and if not, if you don't think that works, well, take it with a grain of salt. You know me, I don't like to force anything down your throat. I like to share what works for me. And uh, I hope that can work out well for you. So that's my rant. 
Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Maria Rice here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Maria, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is an honor and a surprise. Well, you know, <laughs> you reached out to me on LinkedIn and I was like, Maria Rice, hmm, who's this? And I start to look at your background and I was immediately struck. I was like, oh, pff, that's the no-brainer for the show. She's got to be on the show. Hopefully she'll accept and you did, which is great. So I really appreciate you taking the time out for me today. I want to go back in time a bit. I'm looking at your profile and boy, you certainly don't have a lack of education for sure. <laughs> you went to Harvard, you went to Boston University, you went to the New England Conservatory of Music. Yeah, Harvard was just a summer program, so I wouldn't count that. What I'm curious about is where did audio 
becomes such an important thing in your life that you now do what you do with mastering and restoration. It was not a straight line to this place at all. And I, as I feel most important things in life, you're going to follow a circuitous route. Well, this is where I say, oh, this is where it all starts when I was a child and I used to play with my mom's boombox and fix the cassette tapes. And actually, yes, I did do that a lot and, and record songs off of the radio. And just music was always my thing that I did. I started playing the piano at age eight, formally. Before that, I learned the notes on the keyboard, like when I was three or four. It was more focused on playing the piano. And I also played music in school and the orchestra. I played violin. Hmm. Nobody wants to hear me play violin now, trust me. (laughs) (laughs) But piano I stuck with, hence the conservatory studies. I also really got into electronic music and composing my own stuff. But I was also really antisocial, maybe, or shy. And this was maybe in like the late 90s or whatever. I figured if you wanted to record your songs or, you know, make a record, you had to get signed by a big label and you had to collaborate with these people in a studio. And, and I was like, no, I can't. There's no way. I need to just do it all by myself. So anyway, that awkwardness translates well into making electronic music, <laughs> as most people in the genre would agree. In college, I kept following my interests even though while I was studying other stuff that was more humanities focused. This is the same story for most everyone. Started building my own dorm room studio, acquiring, you know, my first synthesizer and learning interfaces and MIDI and all all the basics that you need to like get a system running and how to troubleshoot it without anyone really to ask. Although during that time, there was a big message board kind of culture. And I met a lot of cool internet friends who were also doing similar things. And we would just kind of exchange notes through college. They actually had a decent electronic music set of courses. And that was actually, it ranged from like designing sounds from scratch in C sound with code Mm -hmm. through just actually learning to use a mixing board and like all that sort of stuff. And then that kind of led me to be able to get my desired work study job, which was at the recording studio at the music school at BU. And basically what the recording studio does is they record all of the recitals and band concerts for the music majors. So I got thrown into the world of live recording into Pro Tools and no mistakes. You got to set it up. And if it doesn't work, you don't get the recording, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And also the sort of culture of, okay, figure it out or know when is a good question to ask. Etc. Who was there that, or was there anybody there that you were inspired by or was a bit of a mentor to you in learning the craft? I wouldn't say I was inspired because honestly, they were kind of jerks, but <laughs> in that lovable studio way. Yeah. I think people in our world can relate. It definitely kept me on my toes, which is good. You don't want to be coddled. <laughs> Was there a lot of students in that class? Well, it was a real job. And it was like something where you had to kind of interview. And then they would go and talk to like one of my professors of electronic music to see if I actually knew what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually did this thing. At the time, we were playing with recording on DAT, just even though it was already antiquated at the time. Hmm. And then I went on eBay and bought like a a DA30 just to to have, to play with. And then I happened to mention that I could see in the interview they were like kind of dubious. And then I was like, oh, yeah, well, what is that you have there? Oh, it's Haskell, meow, meow, meow. I'm like, oh, I just got the DA30. He's like, you have a DA30. I'm like, yeah, I never used it. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I, that kind of just it kind of changed the tone of the conversation. And it's like so stupid that you have to like throw out pieces of gear in in conversations. But yeah, that's what happens. So overall, I think there are probably four of us. Oh, okay. Yeah. What was the big takeaway from that program for you? The biggest takeaway, I think, was this whole like do it yourself, troubleshoot it yourself. Don't expect anyone to feed you, to hold your hand hmm. mentality. And know when when you have a real problem and you should call for backup or help or replacement equipment and when it's actually something that you need to look into yourself. That also builds confidence. And every session I was terrified of missing it or something going wrong. And we would record to three different formats so that one would back up the other. But even then, I would always feel like anything could go wrong. And I'm just watching the meter the whole time. But after a while, you start to have faith in the process and faith in your own ability. And you accumulate so many hours doing the same thing. That's what's going to happen. And you said, you know, in the beginning that it's not a straight line from where you started to where you wound up. Where did you go next after that? What was the next big audio stop? So in between college graduation, I did a architecture program at Harvard to, to see if I wanted to go to architecture school after. Hmm. And I enjoyed it at the GSD and started architecture school in Boston at the BAC. And that was probably the first time I ever dropped out of anything in my life. It's a rigorous program and you need to be like 100% all architecture all the time. And you're also required to work in the field full time. So I was working at a place in Rhode Island and then driving back to Boston. And at the same time, I was still making music in my room. I was like, oh, I should finish my model or whatever, but I need to finish this beat or like my friend's playing a show. I need to go. So again, my focus was divided and I let the architecture school go. At the same time, that somehow got me a pretty good job at a big firm in Boston. So I stayed there for a year and I was like, this is kind of not what I thought it was going to be. It, even if I rose through this, there's no creativity or it's not what I wanted. And I wasn't feeling that I was being true to myself. And, you know, I started looking at the, I don't know if they still have it, but Berkeley job board <laughs> mm-hmm. and saw an advertisement for an internship at Peerless Mastering, which is where I am now. I started working for Jessica Thompson. I know Jessica Thompson, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you guys are from the same area, so you must. Yeah, you must hang all the time. (laughs) Not lately. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, true. Yeah, so she has the teacher's instinct, which is you don't find that a lot in this setting. And she was very methodical and procedural and clear and step-by-step and very consistent. And I also worked that way. So I responded really well to that. So I interned for her for a while, maybe like a year, less than a year. And then she ended up moving to New York and I was offered her position and I've been here ever since. Where did the architecture idea come from? What initially got you in that direction? I'm actually also a very visual person. It's always something I've been interested in. I wouldn't say the parents encouraged it, even though my dad had an architecture degree, but I've always been inspired by design. And I think it was mostly a blend of the technical and creative is what Mm -hmm. I was looking for. And I was pretty adept at drafting on the computer and just generally doing stuff on the computer. Mm. So yeah, it's basically the blend of technical and creative. And I didn't really know what other fields did that. 
at the time. Now I know way more. You know, you were talking about having the deadline of finishing something for architecture school, but being drawn back into the electronic music thing you were doing. Was there a point at which you realized this isn't going to work, this architecture thing? And was there any sense of guilt? Like, I really should finish this, but I really want to go in this music or audio direction. What was that internal struggle like? Yeah, I mean, it was a massive sense of guilt. I still feel guilty, but now I've accepted it. Also because I've never given up on a thing before, but sometimes you just got to know when to call it. Mm -hmm. I also got really sick towards the latter half of the semester. This is classic being burned out. And so, you know, one thing has to go. I can't lose my job and I'm not stopping with this music stuff for whatever reason. So it just sort of melted away as I was getting sicker and sicker and missing class. And then I'm like, you know what? What's the point of trying to make all of this up? I kept my job that I had working in the field because that's how I pay rent and stuff. So it was useful in that way. Apparently, you know, at the BAC, the first thing they tell you when you sit down for your orientation is 70% of you won't be here by graduation. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, well, I'm definitely not going to be one of those 70%. But I also feel like maybe it was designed to weed people out. It's very militant. Not like the Harvard GSD at all. (laughs) (laughs) To go back to your previous question, another thing that was pushing me more to architecture was that there was definite parental pressure on getting like a real job, like a salary thing, something professional. Mm -hmm. I'm using air quotes. After I was studying psychology and I did some internships and stuff, and I realized that that setting wasn't really what I wanted either. Mm -hmm. So again, architecture was a setting I was familiar with and I could compromise, or so I thought, on the creative and the technical stuff. And it was a professional track career, so something stable. So that was probably the main thing. I figured that was like the compromise because basically anything I'm interested in makes no money at all. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to go to law school, but like I just couldn't get myself to study for that LSAT. I'm like, I should, but no. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's a natural human struggle where we have things that we want to do pursuits that we want to pursue. And then we have that that social pressure of what others want us to do. And it's hard to make that break to say, nope, I'm going to do what I think is best for me and not what everybody else wants me to do. Some people don't make that that jump and they yeah. live their lives forever, I think, you know, based on what other people want them to do. And it's that's hard. It's hard to cross that bridge. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Actually, when I was working at the big firm where I actually had a cool office and I had kind of my own office and people liked me, I had relatively more security than some of my peers there. In architecture, people were just getting fired left and right. Um, But when I was offered the chance of possibly taking over full time at Peerless, it was a really huge decision because also at that time, I just knew I needed some kind of change in my life. And it was a terrible winter. And the firm I worked for had an office in Fort Lauderdale. And I expressed a desire to be transferred there and had actually gone down there, met everybody, interviewed-ish, showed me where I was going to sit, had a view of the ocean. You know? uh. So I had that waiting for me. And then it just so happens that we get this news that Jessica is moving. And I'm like, really? What's up with this timing? 
And also the salary was going to be significantly less to the point where I wouldn't be able to afford to live in my studio apartment in Boston, which is what I had at the time. And I loved it. And I have to sacrifice. So that lifestyle and also for this sort of relative uncertainty of working in this world. And also, I wasn't really sure if I liked Jeff, the guy who owns this place. It was a while ago. It was, it was 13 years ago, maybe. And so I was like, okay, I had one friend who lived in Miami and we were really close from college. And he's like, just fly down here. Let's have a simulation of what your life would be like if you lived here. And then maybe you'll have some clarity. And like, you're right. I got like a random flight, which meant I sat in the middle in the back of a plane. It was awful. Went down to Miami for a weekend and we did the simulation. You know, he's like, well, here's this neighborhood, this neighborhood. We're going out to dinner here. We're doing this. And I actually had a great time. It was really awesome. One of my favorite weekends. But like I did have that moment of clarity where I was like, you know what? I don't need this, though. And that's really weird because I really thought I wanted to be in a warm place, the ocean and just like less coldness and assholes. <laughs> you know, there's a hardcore work culture where I was. <laughs> And I was like, you know what? I'm good. I'm good with this. It's it's fine. And then I left and accepted. Well, of course, I called my parents and they're like, how are you going to live? I'm like, I'm going to need to borrow money. And then I made arrangements to sublet my apartment. I moved out to this place in Quincy that was considerably cheaper. It's outside of Boston. And um, yeah, it started working here. Wow. It followed my gut. That's all. Talk to me about the Peerless experience. First of all, coming in, you interned at first and you kept your day gig at the architecture firm, right? Yeah, I did. I did. So fortunately here, everyone's a night owl. So I would come in maybe once or twice a week at like 4 p.m. and stay here until like 9 and then come in like on a Sunday or Saturday or that sort of thing. The internships here are not really strenuous because a mastering studio, there's only so many things you can help with. <laughs> Everything kind of has to be really perfect and that sort of thing. So it takes a while to build up trust and rapport. And at the time, there were also two other interns. So it was a really good fit in that way because I could do this moonlighting thing. Coming into this, had you ever been exposed to the mastering side of things before? Definitely not, which is actually something now that every intern that I've interviewed, something everybody shares, nobody knows. And it's actually kind of amazing because, I mean, what I realize now is that they're like, oh, good, you don't know. Now we can like kind of show you from scratch. So you're not coming in with these preconceived notions of like, do this and that ultra maximize everything, you know, that sort of stuff. And you see firsthand how exacting and meticulous things are. So when I was helping Jessica, I was focused mainly in the QC process. And that was, you would be shocked to see how many ticks and pops and things that we're cleaning out. And if you do a good job, no one's going to notice that you did it, right? So we were all working on some of the restoration projects, like from the Numero group, that sort of thing. There's a lot of manual artifact removal involved in that. And it was cool for me to watch how it's done, right? And then I just immediately sort of picked it up and just, it kind of does take sort of a patient and anal personality and it was just really, really detail-oriented as well to stick to it and to do a good job. When I've had other interns and stuff, it's kind of a rare quality, but especially people who come from like mixing backgrounds, there's definitely more of a, like sort of just like a, a macro view I mean, the details seem to be left to to us at this point. And then, yeah, also editing, fades, spaces, that sort of thing. There's a lot of thought that goes into that and just a lot of precision required and just making sure versions match. We are always like zoomed in on like a sample. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. When you came into this, obviously you were taking a deep dive into the world of mastering and so there's a lot of technical to learn. At what point did you start to get up to speed on what the business side of that would present and how you would make a living at it? Honestly, that's something I'm still trying to figure out. Like, how how are we living? How, is, how does this place exist? I'm kind of abreast of everything. Even when I was just starting out, just involved in most everything that was happening, even as just a CC on an email, seeing invoices go out, hearing people coming back with questions and that sort of thing. Also, so hard to remember that there was a time when we actually had attended sessions. Oh, no. <laughs> because of the pandemic. But back in the before times... I would interface with clients every day in person, which now it's like, what? So there's just that whole decorum and also being able to read people and empathize and and just relate and sort of just gauging the differences between people and also emailing them all constantly. Even when I started, I was just thrown into emailing everyone. So fortunately, coming from a real job, that's actually kind of what I did. So I was a project administrator. So that translated really well to working here. I was going to ask if if your architecture gig informed how you operate within this gig at all. Yeah, it definitely did because it's about multitasking, staying on top of things, corresponding with different people, different parts. In architecture, you know, I'm corresponding with contractors and subcontractors, the engineer, the different kinds of engineers, and I send it all to the lead architect. It's not so different when you're dealing with the producer and the artist and the other person who mixed it, that sort of thing, and the label. And also, just, I got to say, sometimes professional poise in writing can be lacking in our industry. (laughs) So, (laughs) So just communicating articulately and pleasantly is something that we prioritize. 
and sitting on your hands when you have something rude to say is something I learned from the architecture world. Well, so how long did you intern before you were offered Jessica's spot? I got to say a year, but it was probably slightly less than a year, maybe even like nine months, maybe. How did you feel uh, about going into that position? Did you feel confident enough that you were ready to jump into that role? No, no, there was a lot of trepidation, but I was just like, okay, well, I'm just going to manage this the best I can, ask the right questions and research the rest. And, and it worked out every now and then that you would run into some kind of snafu and I'd be like, oh no, the world is ending. And then I would consult with Jeff about it and he'd be like, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. Or something else would be a big deal that I didn't realize. Yeah, the first year was like just navigating minefields, but now it's all robotic to me now. How so? Well, it's it's just automatic. <laughs> But I feel like when you accumulate enough examples of success, this worked out, this worked out, this worked out, you have confidence that probability-wise, this isn't going to go wrong. As like a concrete example, I'd say making a DDP for a client, which is the final master. I used to be so paranoid that even though everything looked right, the titles were right, the ISRCs were correct, the markers were all in the right place, I would still be so paranoid that there would be something. But it was really only through just doing them a million times and never having never having an issue. It's like, oh, okay, well, it is irrational because probability says I'm going to screw this up. Talk to me about the restoration side of things. What percentage of your work involves restoration and baking of tapes and working on back catalog stuff for people? Probably say maybe like 20%. When you do a restoration project, most of the time it's a huge project. It's a box set kind of thing for maybe the Numero group or we have this other label. We work with Smog Vale. And so at that time, I feel like it takes up 90% of my time. But it really is probably around 20%. And, and also, it depends on if you're doing all the transfers yourself, then it's definitely much more significant. In the before time, I had a couple of assistants that would also help with baking and transferring tapes and, and vinyl and that sort of thing. Because it's a lot of handwork. You need multiple people to just keep doing that and keep our other projects from falling behind. Plus the whole digital restoration aspect afterwards. That's very time consuming for me. And I want to be able to spend all the time. Sometimes it's about three hours on one song, you know? <laughs> yeah, just doing the artifacts, but you know, it's going to be worthwhile in the end. Do you enjoy that process of restoration or do you much prefer to just master something and not have to deal with the restoration end of things, the baking, the all of that business? I do. I love the mastering and the digital end of restoration a lot. Mm. Actually, even this summer, I took on like a second gig helping to restore some recordings from for the Internet Archive. And they were old 78s. The oldest one I did was from like 1900. Wow. It was just so cool to uncover. It's like you're just like taking off layers of dust and history and keeping them in, but like just sort of uncovering enough dust so that you can like see what it was. So I love that aspect of it. There's a lot of guesswork when you're transferring old tapes, by the way. Just you get these quarter inch reels that nobody knows what's on them and or, <laughs> or if it's half track or if, if they're two sides or if first couple songs end and there's silence. I'm like, is there going to be another song after 10 minutes? So it's a lot of detective work or sometimes then it'll end up being backwards while the other song is forwards. I'm sure there's like kind of a an Indiana Jones aspect to it, like an archaeological aspect to it of taking the dirt away with brushes. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely, definitely. And that's why I think it really requires specialized devotion to do that work. Over the last 13 years, you've had 
quite a lot of time to try different ways of doing things as far as how things are built or or how you interact with clients, what works financially. So first of all, do you consider yourself a spender or a saver? <laughs> I think pretty much anyone who, who knows me knows I am a spender for sure. Okay. Saving is, is hard. Yeah. So yeah, definitely more of a spender or just, I've always had the idea of do whatever it takes to get the best outcome. But knowing that, I mean, do you have a particular financial philosophy that in order to survive in the world of mastering and restoration that you could pass along to others, no matter what that is? This one is tough because I do feel like the biggest quality to have is being really resilient and knowing that somehow the rent is going to be paid. Running this, the studio is so different from having like a corporate kind of job where you know there is a constant cash flow or if a client hasn't paid their bill, you know, you have your accounts payable. And here in the music world, things have to be handled a little bit more delicately because you are dealing with a lot of different kind of sensitive personalities. And also as Peerless is just two people. And I, I need to mention that Jeff is the business manager. He handles the business stuff. I'm the good cop. I'm not the bad cop. Just being like, hey, where's my money? Not really a good look mm -hmm. for the talent. And you also have to be sensitive. You know, we're part of a, an ecosystem and you have to be sensitive that every artist is struggling and they have to do this and that. We have to keep the lights on here. Mm -hmm. I don't know how if I could condense this into a philosophy. One thing that Peerless does that I don't know if other studios might not do is, well, Jeff owns the building. Mm -hmm. So we have multiple tenants. So that helps pay the mortgage on the studio. So that is a steady flow. Well, before COVID, it was... <laughs> mm, mm -hmm. It really helps to diversify if you can. And other people I know in the industry, I can see they've started diversifying their income streams, either by teaching or hosting podcasts or getting into equipment rentals, something. It's really a question I don't have the answer to yet, but I haven't missed a paycheck yet. And people will always be making music. And that's kind of a thing that I always keep in mind. Actually, you know, when there was the recession of 2008, my original mm -hmm. architecture for my work for, they folded immediately. We had our best year ever for some reason. And it's just like people are always going to keep making music in some form and they're going to find a way to pay. Even if it's you, you charge less and do more work because you get more clients. I mean, so be it. Yes, I hate to say it. Everyone says it. It's a sacrifice and diversifying would probably be a good way. But at the same time, when you're devoted to what your craft, it's like, that's what you do. Do you have other things outside of the studio that you like to do? I'm really big into balance and work-life balance. I set boundaries kind of early on, like I need to have weekends off unless, you know, there's a priority, something pressing that, you know, I come in. And the good thing about also working in this setting is we can kind of make our own hours. And if you're naturally mm. a night person and I'm most productive after 2 p.m., that's when I come in and get everything done, stay late. And then I have the whole morning to myself to practice the piano, read a little bit, take care of my cat, all that home stuff. And then weekends, I just shut it all off. I, I don't answer emails hardly. And I do kind of keep that aspect of corporate culture sacred. Do you ever get burnout on audio? Yeah, I'll go through like phases where, you know, I've just been doing a lot of the same thing and it feels kind of robotic. And I think that can contribute to burnout, just less motivation. But then as soon as like something something challenging comes in, then I forgot all about that burnout. Then I'm just like sucked back in again. You know, I'm here because I want to and I, I got to do this thing. I have to do it. You know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, 
Or if you're asking if listening to music all day makes you hate listening to music on your own, a lot of people say yes, but I definitely, I, I say no, because I think it's a different set of, just different listening pathway in the brain for me. When you're working with sound, I'm not really listening to the music musically. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing sound and balance and that sort of thing. If I go and listen to the same thing in my car, then it's like the appreciation turns on stuff I didn't even notice while I was working on it. If you didn't do audio, what other gig in life would you like to do? Would that be architecture or is there something completely different that we haven't talked about? Well, I always wanted to be a parapsychologist. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned law school a while ago. If it wasn't like too late, I would be interested in sort of music, business, intellectual property, kind of law. I've always been a, like a verbal person. And it's really important to me that people's rights are protected in the creative industry. Where can people find out more about you? Probably my LinkedIn is the best way. You can also email me. It's at maria at peerlessmastering.com. And you can also find me through the Peerless Masterings Instagram. Okay. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes to that so the audience can reach out to you with questions if they have any. Well, Maria, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on the show, taking time, especially Thanksgiving week and meeting up with me here on Zoom. So have a great Thanksgiving and, and thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Maria Rice here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top with the magic voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.